0: The following is a Cartoonerific Studios presentation. Welcome to Cartoon Fun, it's Cartoonerific! Yeah!
1: Welcome to the Cartoony Show. This is Cartoonerific Classic Animated Cartoons Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Mitchell, and thanks for coming by. Last week on the Cartoonerific Podcast, our guest was Jerry Reese, and he was talking about uh, his influences and uh, his education, his mentor, Eric Larson, getting into Disney animation, working on films such as Fox and the Hound and Tron. This week, we're going to be talking about a film that he wrote and directed called The Brave Little Toaster. And so that's coming up in just a few minutes.
0: And now, it's time for Cartoonerific News.
1: Well, this may be news to you. It's not news to me. But there's uh, some shorts out there that are available on uh, the YouTube and uh, Vimeo. It's called The Pups of Liberty. Let's see if I say that again. Pups of Liberty. It's produced by uh, Jennifer and Bert Klein. Uh, it's basically American history, uh, presented with dogs as Americans and cats as the English. It's very interesting. It's really well animated. It uses classical cartoon animation and has some of the top talents from Disney animation, like Dale Bear, who uh, passed away not too long ago, Uh, Mark Hen, and Ruben Aquino. Some really fine character animation. It reminds me a bit of Ben and Me, and the animation itself kind of reminds me of some of that classic animation of Winnie the Pooh from the first three Pooh shorts that were done back in the 60s and 70s. So if you haven't seen it, go and see it. It's uh, Like I said, it's available YouTube and Vimeo. And uh, if you just do a search, Pups of Liberty, and I'm messing that up, Pups of Liberty, uh, (laughs) you will find it uh, online and you should be able to view it. So uh, please do. Anyway, uh, getting back to the Brave Little Toaster, I did a search because I wanted to watch the film again, and I have uh, the film on DVD But uh, I have all that stuff packed away because basically a lot of that stuff is available on the Disney Plus service. And unfortunately, it is not available there. It's not available on Netflix. I've looked around in many places and can't seem to find it. Uh, So I don't think it's streaming at this time. Uh, I mean, you could look up local listings and maybe see if it's available somewhere else. But uh, I just I don't see it. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think the only other option is either to buy it, uh, you can buy it on DVD, or I believe you can have it downloaded for a couple of bucks. Uh, it's, it's an excellent film if you haven't seen it. So, uh, please do so. Anyway, our talk with Jerry Reese about the Brave Little Toaster and some of the theme park attractions that he worked on is coming up next. Stay tuned. Don't go away.
0: -er Cartoonerific is the place to be to celebrate hand-drawn animated cartoons. The -er Cartoonerific podcast features interviews with the magic makers behind your favorite animated cartoons with episodes uploaded every Friday. Or visit the -er Cartoonerific blog featuring articles about classic cartoon animation. At the -er Cartoonerific Gallery, view original animation art and memorabilia from your favorite animated films and TV shows. The company store features exclusive swag from the Cartoonerific universe. And coming soon, brand new world premiere cartoons on the Cartoonerific channel. It's all here. Join the fun at www.cartoonerific.com. That's Cartoon E-R-I-F-I-C dot com. It's Cartoonerific, saving the universe one funny cartoon at a time. And now it's time for our special cartoonerific guest.
1: Yes, it's that time. So sit back, relax, get some popcorn, ice cream, what cup of coffee? What the heck? Here is Jerry Reese, part two of our interview. Right now, enjoy. How did How did uh, Brave Little Toaster come about? Because uh, that that's quite a remarkable film. How you pulled that thing together? How you created it? and the story is uh, about a bunch of appliances, but geez, it it has a lot of emotion to it, and it's uh, wonderful.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, you know, it's for me. There was this, and and it's I must say the timing is interesting. Yesterday, I had a Zoom reunion with fifteen of the crew that worked with me, and I'm later this month uh, talking to David Newman about his score and to. Deanna Oliver and John Lovitz and Tim Stack about the wonderful voices they did for it. And um, so we, we were reliving the time that we had together and, and just, it was, uh, you know, just you felt the f- ongoing warmth of the family that we put together while we were making that project. And we felt like we, we cared about each other. We cared about the characters. We cared about the audience that would see it. And it was such an emotional time for all of us. And we we really were determined to we just lived in that emotional, supportive family space together and still feel that connection to this day. And thankfully, a lot of that spilled into the film. But at the time, a lot of people just thought I was nuts, even even my <laughs> wife, Rebecca, who wound up being a directing animator on it. When I first came home and said, "Yeah, I'm going to do this thing called the Brave Little Toaster. She thought it was nuts. and. and <laughs> Thought it was going to be some kiddie film and everything, and uh, but what had happened for me was I think it started back when you know all those frustrations of trying to you know I've described to you how we were inspired by Star Wars and then we would try to put something in the film and then it would be watered down. Frank and Ollie would try to put something in a film and it would get watered down. It's just every turn things wouldn't happen, and then you know we got some feeling of okay, making a little bit of a difference on Tron and then really getting ready for something big on the spirit and thought, okay, this is finally a chance to really break out and do something worthy of all the legacy that we've been inspired by. We do something where, where our thing might matter in the history. It's like their thing mattered. Sure. And then, and then that didn't happen. It's like, it was five years of investment though, Brad and I, and, and a number of other people, but, but between the two of us, especially uh, close to five years, of commitment. And then it finally folded ultimately just because we couldn't find an investor that would believe in what we were doing. They wanted to make the script. If we did it in live action, they just said, Oh, if just do an animation, we don't want to do that. That's animation is for kids. And we're like, no, it's not for kids. <laughs> and you read the script and you want to make the script. Oh yeah. We love the script. Well, it, that's the movie. It just happens to be in the animated art form. It's like, no, it's for kids. It's like, no, the art form doesn't automatically make things for kids. But anyway, it, it had gone for so long and ultimately uh, Gary was going through for many other reasons. And believe me, we weren't pulling enough to make this happen, but he was going through uh bankruptcy. Oh yeah. Exactly. So, so we finally had to turn the spirit off and after all that work, and we were, God, we had like 80% of the film storyboarded just between Brad and I boarding everything. And wow. it was wow. beautifully like, uh, I used those, um, those thick and thin markers where was the brush tip yes and and toned everything so somewhere in boxes there's like 80% of the spirit movie like in storyboards i hope Brad still has those but um so we, we had to turn that off and it was another like just just feeling like oh my god it's like we're starving to just do something that matters and do something where you get to do filmmaking and do storytelling so the moment i but i went and and told gary it's like I, i'm sure you could use one less check to write every week. So, um, totally believe in the film. If it happens, I'm right back here, but for now I'll step away and, and we'll see what happens. So the moment I was free and word drifted down and my wife and I had moved up to Marin County. We were actually working out of Gary Kurtz's place up in San Rafael. So as soon as, uh, word got out, Tom Wilhite called me and said, you have to fly down to LA. I want to get together about a project. Mm -hmm. So I flew down and he just said, there's this novella he handed it to me it's called the brave little toaster thomas just wrote it science fiction author it's not really a kid's thing it's a a really brilliant sci-fi author making an observation about things that are meaningful in humans lives and things that want to feel like they're they're still valuable and have a function and all of that so he said there's there's a lot that could be gotten here but it was in development for a short time. Lasseter was going to do it and he was trying to do it in computer graphics. And he said, people keep telling me it's a good short. Are you thinking of this as a feature? Mm. So he said, so John's gone and we still have, uh, Brian McEntee and Joe Rampt that were going to be in his crew are still available if you want them. And I said, Oh, Gosh, yes, I think they're amazing. Mm-hmm. So he said, "What I right now, it, people are telling me it's a short. So I need you to read this novella, and I need somebody to develop the story for a fe- be worthy of a feature, and to write it and to direct it. So I have hardly any money, but I can give you that. <laughs> and I know the spirit just died, and I know like you're dying to make something. You can make this film. So, uh, so I said yes." And jumped onto it, and he really let me just shake the etch a sketch and start over. Uh, I went in and met with uh, with Joe and and with Brian McEntee, and looked at some stuff that was in the works, and then started reshuffling the story and figuring out the characters. And one of the things I was telling this to Brian last night, Brian McEntee, he, I, I one of the things I saw was partway through like midway through the original story, there was a junkyard they went past and he had done these great drawings of really dark foreboding stacks of these cars that are uh, stacked piled up going into like a foggy sky and stuff. But that was partway through and then they continue on their journey and they, and there's an owner that's abandoned them and stuff. And so I just went, that's the end of the movie. That's the graveyard that's that's not part way through the movie that's the end if you're an appliance that's the grave mm-hmm. so let's shove this whole thing to the end of the movie okay and then then we started brainstorming and i only had i gave myself i also read to them i found a couple months ago the first memo i ever wrote to my toaster team so i <laughs> read it to them and it was hair raising to see what how short our deadlines were but uh i only had four weeks to redo story Wow and wow, so it was Joe and me and Brian McEntee. Mm-hmm. and so that was one thing is like different end to the movie, and then, okay, the person that abandoned them, I don't like them, so mm-hmm. maybe it's a kid that bonded like when kids play with with the appliances stuff, and you you know we used to give our kids ride on the vacuum and stuff like that, so like maybe they bonded with the kid, and that's who they think of as their owner and it's not the kids fault that the parents are selling the house so now okay if that's if that's their owner that who they think of as their master then i don't blame them and now i like them again and right. then when they have a reunion um let's actually have have them grown up so now you can see the passage of time so there was adding a whole bunch of layers of that and then it's like gee what you know there's no like uh, there's no moment where the toaster is actually has a big brave moment. It's brave the whole time, generally, but, well, if you put the junkyard at the end, and then what if they are there, they make it all the way to the apartment, but then they, they're they stuck in the junkyard. And then if he comes there, then they could have a moment where they're trying to save the person that they've been trying to be reunited with from being killed, like that that could be a brave moment. Mm-hmm. So there were all these new things that were just sort of coming alive in that story process. Sure. And, but then I still felt like the ensemble was an ensemble. So we really sat down to go through each character and figure out, okay, what, what about the lamp? What about Lampy? And so we zeroed in on, well, he thinks he's really bright, but he's a little dim. went, (laughs) okay, that gives me something to write. And then toaster is warm and everybody feels themselves reflected in the toaster. And, Mm -hmm. and if you're, male, you think of it as male. If you're female, you see your own reflection, you think of it as female. If you're a flower in the forest, you think it's another flower. So sure. it sort of is everyone for everybody. And uh, so it's like, okay, that gives me something to write to. And uh, the radio, always on, always the entertainer, you know, it's like, uh, it's like okay, that gives me something to write to. Right. And the, the blankie just saying, well, it, if it's for a kid, which there was no kid in the original story, then say, well, it's their security blanket. And now without the kid, it's an insecurity blanket until it's reunited <laughs> with the kid. So I went, okay, that gives me something to write. And then the vacuum, gosh, it's function is to pull things inside and hold them there. And I thought, well, if you use that as a metaphor emotionally, it's like the character that holds everything inside, right? Uh, boy, are they headed for a blowout? So, you know, those decisions all like, now there was something to write to. And, um, so then charging Pell Mell into, into writing that thing. Um, I would just do a few pages at a time and then hand them out to myself and Joe and Daryl Rooney and Alex Mann. And then we would storyboard. And in my memo that I read last night to the group mm-hmm. it was one day for us to rough board and one day to tweak. That was it. The oh. whole thing. Wow. So it was like your first rough. And then I would sit with everybody and as director, like just do whatever tweak the next day and that was it and everything was just straight ahead but i was i you know that, that old notion of the studio system where you'd say well when you're storyboarding and this is something that we all had to get in this mindset i i was used to you know seeing the kind of dramatic filmmaking in those classic disney features and then in the modern world i you know brad and i would go see spielberg films we'd see close encounters and we'd be marveling over shots that were well planned and everything And so i'm like That's what a good director does. You know, you plan your shots and everything. It's like, why would you do storyboards that just generally show a bit of business, but don't have a cinematic point of view? And then later go, well, send it to the layout department. And then other people are going to sit there and take a few months to go, well, this is what the characters are doing. You might show it from these angles. And then eventually the director comes in and starts to mess with what the layout department is doing, et cetera. And went, no, a director decides the cinema. So Mm -hmm. on the first day you're deciding how the audience is, how something is revealed to the audience. You should know before you do it. (laughs) So I went, we don't have all the time, which is we decide the cinema right now, and then it goes into the layout department to support and improve on the cinema that's already decided. But I'm not opening it up to discussion to go, yeah, this wide shot might become a close up. It's like, no, it (laughs) was a close up that pulled wide for a reason. And that's what it is. but man, the everybody that worked on it just contributed so much individually. And Brian in doing art direction and then layout supervision, and he would, and, you know, at first I think he felt a little handcuffed to go like, oh, the shot's already decided. But then I would challenge him. It's like, yeah, I decided on a wide angle, low shot here, but make it better. Make it better than my sketch. Make it lower and make it more wide angle. So he would really... Then try to plus everything. It's like, okay, you decided the cinema, but I'm going to make it more kick ass. Right. So right. it still gave everybody something to do and something to contribute to. And, and for the, for everybody on it, uh, I was so lucky to have people that were equally hungry mm-hmm. to do something. And a lot of, a lot of us talked about it and it was our first time taking on something this big. And for some people, it was the first time doing layout or the first time, doing a feature in animation. It was my first time directing a, f- a feature and you know, it's just everybody on the crew that was a boutique sized crew, but everybody was equally thrilled to be getting a chance to do something. So nobody was there just to do a job. They right. were there to try to make something that we could be proud of later, looking back on it and go, you know, it's, it's, it was so sweet, Rebecca. And, and, uh, Daryl and a couple people were talking about this last night, where they said at the end of the movie, and and Steve Moore, he said, you know, at the end of the movie, there's, a, if for anybody familiar with it, there's after they go through this whole journey together and they survive and they're reunited and the toaster is kind of bent back into shape after it gets itself ground up in the gears and stuff, and they're now they're in the trunk of the car heading off to whatever future at college with, with Rob and Chris, the the master who's grown up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this scene where they. They're kind of chatting with each other in the trunk of the car. And, uh, there's a, one of the characters says we did good, didn't we? And that they were as a crew last, last night, they were just saying, it felt like that was, that was our, that was us saying it, it was sure. our, our whole team going, we went through the swamp, we went through the <laughs> electromagnet, trying to grind us. We went through all that stuff and we made it. And we felt like we were the characters who are finally getting to breathe a sigh of relief and go, I think we did, we did good
1: i'm I'm just gonna delve into uh some of that production, so it was basically the pre pro all the pre pro on that film was done in Los Angeles. Where was yes, that done? uh
2: it was on McCadden Place in Hollywood, and uh it was rat infested, <laughs> and I believe they were making adult films downstairs, but we never stuck our nose in there right uh but it was just the reality of Hollywood at the time. And there were rats in the building. So in one of the photographs I had, uh, I shared some behind the scenes stuff with the crew last night. And one of them showed like a a hole that was in the ceiling (laughs) from rain damage and stuff. And, you know, they had seen rats peeking through that hole. And so when we came to have breakfast, there were actually rats on the catering table. And it wasn't really a catering table. It was just a table we set out there. And We'd bring bagels and cream cheese. And the rat was eating the cream cheese right in front of us, sitting on the table. And
1: uh, somebody goes... A member of the crew. Yeah.
2: So one of the crew members was like, I think I'll have a bagel, but not with that cream cheese. (laughs) That that rat is eating.
1: Very good decision.
2: And we had, uh, you know, our windows. It's, uh, you know, I can show you images, but Mm -hmm. in the window where people would work, through the glass, like a foot outside was another brick wall for the building, like not 10 feet away, like one foot away. Wow! So you just, you would look out the window and see bricks and inside the wind, inside on the walls, bricks outside the window, bricks. And so we were just, <laughs> we were not in a uh, uh, conducive atmosphere for creativity, but everybody just hyper-focused. There was so much, production that everybody had to get through, like the the it was like the Indiana Jones ball that rolling towards us. So with the storyboards and the writing having to stay slightly ahead of the storyboards, having to stay slightly ahead of the layout, uh and the the character design staying slightly ahead of the animation posing. And it was just all it was so collapsed on itself that there was sort of no time to Look around at the rats and the bricks out the window and all the right, <laughs> and the right. and the uh, strange sounds coming from downstairs it's just we had to to focus on what we were doing every moment
1: did you did you do start the animation in l a and then bring it overseas because you you all went with it right I mean it basically yeah was... there was
2: a, there was a whole team that I took with me, and yes we got as much done as possible with um the storyboards becoming layout. And we would take the storyboards and attach them to the front of the, the envelope where the layouts were so that the animator could see the poses that we'd done in the, in the storyboard sketches, which since we were animators, it kind of we kind of did poses in our storyboards that were key emotional moments. So it wasn't just like one size comparison in a layout, which often happens. It was actually the breakdown of emotional expressions through a whole scene. Uh, stacked in storyboards on the front of that layout. And we did experimental animation to establish how the characters would even move and what would make them Mm -hmm. individualized and then did a a, a few minutes of animation here but did a lot of prep and then took it overseas and then we had to keep everything rolling along with my team now. We were all living over there. Uh,
1: Where, Where was the production overseas? Was that in Japan or...
2: It was in Taiwan. It was at James Wong's uh, Cuckoo's Nest studio. Okay. And James was a savior to us. He said, look, I'll, you know, I'll give you a price break. I know you've got very little money, but I, but I know that like you went to Cal Arts and then you were a Disney feature animator and now you're directing this. So you could teach my people something about Disney animation. And he would look at Rebecca and Randy Cartwright and all these different people and go, you just came out of cal arts and you just graduated but you just did a whole disney training thing so all of you can help my people learn more about the disney tradition mm-hmm. and i would like when you leave for my group to be more desired for other productions so that is reason for me to give you a price break since you'll be holding classes basically while you make your movie right and uh, so that's what he did and he and he did a A really important thing, and I I always appreciated this. I I had a heart to heart with him. And I said, since, you know, since you're asking us to, to try to train people in as much as we can convey about our Disney training, one of the things that I need to do as director is just to hand pick from your team, whoever is most capable of taking on certain kinds of animation. And I have to be able to ignore the seniority of your system. I I don't want to know if somebody's been here for 10 years and deserves something or if somebody's just walked in and only been here for a week. I I shouldn't know any of that. I should just look at their work and go, okay, we need this person, this person, this person, Mm -hmm. and I need them in this job position. And if it happens to be somebody with seniority, great. If it's somebody that just walked in and suddenly they get promoted above 20 other people that feel like they deserved it it's kind of has to be how this works. If we're going to do something this crazy fast and learn and have a quality standard. And so he agreed. Wow. He said, said, I'll, I'll I'll let you do that. And I know that was a big deal. And so he let me handpick people and it was great. And then, and then, uh, in addition to being one of the directing animators, Rebecca who had experience as an assistant and as an animator, realized that she had to do a lot of training of their assistants before they could even be ready to do good cleanup. So in addition to her dealing with animation as a directing animator, supervising scenes and animating scenes, she also taught the assistants how to do good cleanup. So uh, a lot of us were switching and wearing, wearing a number of hats and we were there for six, six whole months. So it was six months prep and six months overseas and then six months post. Wow.
1: Incredible. How many, how many people went across to uh, Taiwan?
2: Uh, the team that went to Taiwan with me was Rebecca Reese and Brian McIntyre, Joe Rampt, Steve Siegel, Randy Cartwright, Chuck Richardson, Steve Moore, Chris Wall, uh, Kevin Lima, Ann Talnis, and Tanya Wilson. Wow. And Ann Talnis is now a Pulitzer Prize-winning political cartoonist. And um, and of course, Kevin Lima and all of them just have amazing careers that they've well,
1: Kevin Lima made. directed so enchanted, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, goofy movie and yeah. your Other stuff. So, uh, but yeah, they all, they all went overseas. And so we, we stepped over there in 1985 and stayed for six months and uh, actually part way through the uh, one of the producers came back and said, okay, you're, we're running out of money and you're done now anyway. So you have to go back. And I said, well, no, we're here for six months. We reserved. We all sublet our apartments and such for six months because the deal was we're here for six months and that's James and the schedule and everything is six months. Wow. It's like, no, 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 it's just two and you have to go home now. And we don't have the money. And I said, okay, if somebody's playing with the money. I don't know what's going on, but that's not true. It's six months and I have to keep my crew here for six months. Otherwise there's not a movie. So I just said, look, I will, whatever you were going to pay me for this whole six months, just give back to the production so we can keep going. Uh, Brian McEntee said the same thing. Wow. Uh, Joe said the same thing. So we just only lived on per diem and had no salary for six months. And that's what, let us keep afloat and keep our team there and finish the movie and um you know it's uh, i'm still six months in the hole on the film i never got never got paid back they did write up paperwork that promised to pay back but they didn't do that until um brian actually took them to court and i was i helped him with that so uh to at least be a witness and uh so he got some some of what was owed him back but uh but I never saw that. So I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> officially six months in the hole for the film. But uh, wow. just uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, that was the thing. It wasn't a job. It was a f- it was a film that we were dying to make and we cared about it and we cared about each other and the characters and the audience. And we were starving to make something. So I wasn't about to let it die. And if I had to do something that extreme, so be it.
1: It's an incredible sacrifice to to make a movie. Um, was there was there additional money? That there, there had to be additional money in the budget for uh, scoring the movie. And well, y-
2: yes, there there was, and um, you know, all all in uh, two and a quarter million for the whole film. It's amazing. And uh, amazing. David Newman did an amazing job with mm-hmm. the score, and we went to uh, the New Japan Philharmonic to to record there. Uh, so yeah, that's that was an extraordinary experience. He would describe the film as being so sad. He said, this is so sad. And he told me, and it was, boy, he just really, he really embraced the character's journey and the inherent metaphor that we all feel for wanting to be worthwhile and not like outlive our warrant and not being want to be replaced by next year's model. It's like, there's so much that resonates with just our needs as human beings in, in what the characters go through. Oh, sure. And he, he said, and I, I talked to him about this in general, in his work, he said, anytime there's a moment of happiness in a story or in life, it's not going to last forever. So I always see it as a fleeting happy moment. And I, right? Some sad underpinning to the happy moment in the music. So mm-hmm. there is sadness running underneath the happiness all the time. It's never just happy. Right. And um, so he brought that sort of um, sort of pathos and, and what people have described to me in the last few years. Uh, I hadn't heard it before, but, the, but now I've heard it a lot in the last 10 years, people mm-hmm. describing it as a dark, a very dark movie. And um, so that was, that was part of it was his amazing score that had so much emotional dimension, uh, I think gave it, gave it the emotional, emotional depth and, and the actors completely embracing sure, being in the moment. And, you know, there's, there's things where it was, uh, I, and I, I originally brought in some people to, to read and this was kind of unique about the movie too. We're searching for, for things that kind of made it different, they, you know, I had some usual people that were on lists for voice work, come in and, and read some of the first pages that I had written. And um, I I was so disappointed by those scenes, I would, I would hear back and I would be talking. And I would just be Oh, God, I know I wrote a better scene than this. Right. And uh, so, Joe Rampt had been taking some classes at uh, the Groundlings Improv Theater, just to to exercise and put more work, you know, good performances into his animation and his story work and everything. He said, you want to come, there's some really cool people down at Groundlings. You want to just come by and see what happens there? So I said, hell yeah, let's go down there. So I went down to Groundlings Improv and there I was seeing people who, I think what was happening is the people that came in to read and there were some, some good people who have, since done amazing work sure but i think at the time their impulse was i should push this to be really novel because it's about a talking appliance so i made, need to make it sound really novel and weird and i was looking for the opposite i was looking for a reason to connect with it emotionally and believe it mm-hmm. so when i went to the groundlings it's like they were they were totally used to that because you think about it you're you know they're on stage you're in the audience and they go Okay, what is she? And it's like she's a stock of celery. okay, well, who's he? A radish <laughs> okay? uh you're at a bus stop and you fall in love. Go and their job it's already insane. Their right. job is to find some way that it's relatable and that you believe that the stock of celery and the radish fell in love. It's like they they try to find a a relatable, believable thing at the core of that craziness. So when they came in. And I started showing them pages and then taking through it. They connected into like, oh, I'm the, the lamp that thinks he's bright, but it's a little dim and I'm, I'm the warm toaster. It's like I, I give everybody security. And so they tapped into those core things and, uh, and really brought it alive. So, mm-hmm. you know, I know improv actors and comics and everything has been quite the norm, uh, in recent years, but at the time it was a bit unusual to just kind of not look at any of the usual voice list and just go, Go to the Groundlings Improv Theater and get Phil Hartman and John Lovitz, who both were just about to be called out to Saturday Night Live.
1: Right, right. Deanna Ol- actually John was mm-hmm. Deanna, Deanna Oliver. Oliver. Yeah, Deanna Oliver
2: she, she, is still a director there.
1: She uh, at Groundlings. Yeah, and she was. Uh, she was actually the voice director over at uh, Warner Brothers on Animaniacs. And, yeah, 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 and a writer too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah, work she with her. yeah.
2: Deanna is amazing. And, uh, Tim Stack and Phil Hartman and John Lovitz and, and Mindy Sterling and Judy Toll. And mm-hmm. we practically raided the place. And then of course <laughs> we got Thurl Ravenscroft who was an astounding legend to work with. And, uh, oh, absolutely. And Tim, Tim Does anybody know
1: who Thurl is? He's the voice of Tony, the tiger. He's in the haunted mansion. He's, uh,
2: uh, I knew him for all his non-Tony stuff. <laughs> I knew him for all his Disney stuff. I knew all of it. So, and when somebody told me he was Tony the Tiger, I was like, "Oh, yeah, I guess that's right." But most people only know him from Tony the Tiger.
1: That's right. And uh, but he was uh, part of the Dapper Dans, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, and yeah. and
2: um, gosh, barbershop he,
1: quartet. He, yeah. Great ba- bass voice, God.
2: Yeah, and he, he's singing in the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, Yoho, a Pirates of Life for Me, he's the bass voice. He's actually one of the heads in the Haunted Mansion. Um, mm-hmm. That's the, the singing bust head. Does to, he's, they, he's actually on film as uh, as well as doing the voice. And he, he would do, um, he was Buff the buffalo head in the Country Bear Jamboree. And, that's right. And, and uh, uh mr
1: and, uh, and your mean one mr grinch mr grinch yeah, yeah. It,
2: it, absolutely and he was in johnny man's uh the johnny man singers and and he sang with elvis and uh he had a hilarious story about people telling him that you know nobody looks at elvis no eye contact whatever's like stay away from elvis and he gets to the mic and, and it's in another room elvis is in his own room sure and so he belts out a few notes and elvis comes walking in Who's singing bass? That's me. (laughs) Oh man, I got to meet you. Elvis came over to meet him. (laughs) And I I got to hang out with him and direct him in person. It was none of this, uh, you know, connection by satellite or anything. He came in and and hung out and told us all kinds of stories. I've got all kinds of pictures of us listening to his uh, great tales of Walt Disney and Elvis Presley and on and on. Pretty cool. Uh, But John Lovitz got cast on Saturday Night Live after I had cast him and was writing the character for him, so he was his agent just uh, gave a cursory call and went, "He's gone. John's on SNL now. Big break. Bye." <laughs> so, so I I called him back and said, "John, please, please, I wrote this for you. You got to stay here and do it." So he's like, "Ah, maybe we could work something out. I don't know." So we um, <laughs> got uh, Buzzy's recording studio and just did one marathon session to record his entire track for the whole movie. I sat in the booth with him and fed him the other characters lines. And he did a, a marathon session. He got halfway through and Don Ernst, who is my wonderful editor on the film. And we went on to do things like produce uh, Aladdin Mm -hmm. and he, he motions me in after we'd been a few hours at it and we're halfway through the movie. Right. and and john had been it, you know you know it, i mean he was he was loving being entertaining so he would in addition to doing the lines he would do a few extra lines and then do like make me laugh and make the engineer laugh and make everybody laugh and then it, that was just using a lot of his energy and so sure, sure. we were enjoying it but it was uh, you know it wears on your voice after a while and so he don Ernst calls me in and has a quiet talk with me and goes he's he's fading and I've never seen somebody come back in one marathon session. You just have to do another day somehow. We have to fly to New York and meet with him there when he's doing SNL or whatever. Right. But this is it was great, but it's fading and and it if you listen back, it will not stand up. You you can't cut this stuff together from here on. Right. So, I just said, "Well, let me talk to John." So, I took John out for a break. It was night. We walked down the sidewalk and it was cool air and you know i just i said you know i've been working you really hard you've been doing gangbusters but you know it's like the energy after a while your battery needs a little recharge and so what do you think what do you think you know can we can we keep going or do you want to do it another time or like whatever you feel and he's like yeah let's go back in to do it look i'll we'll go in i'll be holding my eye and I'll I'll pretend you hit me and I'll go, okay, Jar. I'll do whatever you want. And I'll go back into the microphone. So he made up this whole thing. <laughs> so we go in and he actually did it. He did the whole ruse. Pretty cool. And he goes back to the mic and he just went, okay, just tell me what you want. I won't waste any more energy. So he just, he just focused. And whereas he's so capable of improv, that's the thing is he, he his brain was going, still doing like a hundred lines. Sure. But he really just focused on here's, here's what you wrote. How do you want me to do it? And then we'd just do it and really put his energy into it. And we finished the rest of the movie. And because we were doing that, I had been up all night the night before writing the end of the movie because I hadn't finished writing the script. Right. So I had to write the whole ensemble. I couldn't just write his lines. I had to write the whole ensemble end of the movie. So that whole scene in the trunk and, and the stuff when the master's repairing the toaster and stuff, I had to just write through the night. Wow. And then to get together with him and record the marathon th- thing straight through. And then he went off to SNL. And then I sat in and fed his lines to the rest of the ensemble group. Because I love recording ensemble. Yeah, I hate this whole thing of recording one person at a time. So I didn't. I got a bunch of mics and had everybody in at the same time. And then I would just sit in for, for John, knowing that his lines, his original lines were going to replace mine. But I'd just give him something to feed off during the ensemble.
1: Wow. Wow. Pretty neat. How was Phil Hartman?
2: Songs came along.
1: <laughs> how is, then uh, I had to sing. How was Phil Hartman to work with? Because he was a tremendous talent, too. I mean, he was amazing.
2: Phil was tremendous. He he was so thoughtful and focused and would just really carve out the emotional space he was supposed to be in, where it's going for like subtlety or sarcasm and stuff. And that was that was another scene where it's just we weren't cracking the nut. On the character, because I told you how we came up with all, all the other characters had their own space. Sure. Air conditioner didn't have one yet. And um Joe and I just in we would occasionally pitch to people that would come in to maybe invest in the movie. So we'd be in the middle of working and and we'd suddenly get something from the producers like, hey, somebody's coming by, they might invest. Get to pitch them some of the boards this afternoon. So they'd come in and we'd like pull the boards in and I'd go through and tell the story and then I would push that out and Joe would tell the next board. And then we did tag team like that. And we would just do this kind of angry voice for the air conditioner. And I hadn't really finished that part of the script and, but just angry didn't fit enough. It wasn't like the, the lamp who thinks he's bright, but he's a little dim. There's something just that fits for that. Mm -hmm. So finally we were just in goofing around. I would occasionally do this, kind of Nicholson voice. And he would do, and he would do that. And we started kind of doing it to goof and make each other laugh when we were pitching with the investors there. Sure. And uh, so then it suddenly hit. And I went just, Oh my God, who's more cool than Nicholson. And he's (laughs) above everyone else. Right. And literally in the wall is above everyone else, which makes him feel kind of lofty, but he's separated from the kid when the kid's little. And so he feels left out. So I was like, Oh my God, there's the hook. And I just went and locked the door and wrote that whole scene in one session. So now I'm turning it over to Phil in the recording booth. And he just so nailed getting into the mindset of that character who's toying with them. Right. And being coy and being sarcastic and then feeling left out and then being pissed and exploding. It just, he took it through the roller coaster ride. He took that on was just amazing.
1: Yeah, I thought I thought it was a fun moment when he's just kind of just going a little bit nuts in the wall saying, I'm stuck in this wall, you know, I'm
2: stuck in this stupid wall. I'm, I'm, I was designed to be stuck in this stupid wall. It's my function. So he's like, <laughs> I, you know, I can't help it. <laughs> and he can. not It's like as a as a carrier, it's like that. That's like the vacuum. He was made to hold things inside. And yes, he has a breakdown. And and uh, because of it, well, the air conditioner was made to be stuck in a wall. That was yeah, his function.
1: That was his function. But,
2: but it made him separated from the action when the kid was little and too short to reach his dials. Right. So in a lot of, but, but yeah, Phil was great. And then uh I got to work with him one more time briefly and doing a, I just did some temp work for alien encounter. He did some uh, serve the, the robot. He did some things that I, I used as, as uh, a placeholder. And then later I used Tim Curry for that part, but it was, right. but I did have one last Work session with Phil how, how He was still with us, right. and and Phil also did mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the the um, the the uh, the hanging lamp. That's the Peter Laurie lamp. Yes, that's also yes. Phil Hartman. Wow. Yeah. So he did two two voices. Wow.
1: Incredible. And yeah, he was just he was great. When uh, you were telling me before before we actually went on started recording this, what happened to the brave old toaster? Because I saw it on Disney. I saw it on the Disney Channel. I thought it was absolutely amazing, and but the thing was, was like I I knew it was made on a minuscule budget, and um, but when I watched it, I was like, why didn't this go into theaters? And uh, you have to tell the story real quick, um, right? Um,
2: well, uh, you know, we we had a uh, we knew we were making it independently, and that was the that was the blessing was for the first time. I, I was able to just go forge ahead with decisions every day and just do a movie. It was a, you know, all my whole history before was trying to get things done and then somebody saying no, mm-hmm. and then somebody saying yes, behind your back. And somebody is saying no up in front of you. And just, it was, uh, or we're going bankrupt. And it was always just some reason why something couldn't happen. But finally I was just had that, that freedom to to just forge ahead and make something and the independent movie status was the only reason I could do that and if if it hadn't been independent I would have had committees that were reviewing every choice I was trying to make oh about yeah they'd be trying trailer. to throw
1: a dog in there you know or, yeah and just yeah. oh
2: let's do this and that. yeah so uh, so uh, so the blessing of being independent was I had all that freedom most creative freedom I've ever had the the curse of course is you're looking for a distributor mm-hmm. when you're done and people had, in, had invested in the film to get different rights. Uh, Disney had wound up being one of the investors and they had invested some money towards having the cable rights and home video, but no merchandising, no theatrical. And we had a screening at the Wadsworth Theater and CNN and Entertainment Tonight and a bunch of places came out and saw us and, and Tim Burton came out. Um, and then thinking back, I think he brought Winona Writer that night, um, to, to see the film and. They We got all these amazing reviews, even though we were just a screen of an independent movie and we weren't released yet. There were these to die for reviews, mm-hmm. or say, sharper and wittier than anything you've seen coming out of Disney. And finally, a film that makes they, proves that you, they can make them like they used to. And for kids and adults alike, it's for the whole family and on and on. It was just it's the best stack of reviews <laughs> <that> I could <laughs> ever hope for. Right. Um but, you know, that didn't sit well <clears throat> with Disney because at the time that made it look like a competitor was getting all these reviews that were giving them, giving our little independent movie higher praise. Right. Than what was going on at the studio at the time. And uh, so they, and then I let everybody found out then that we were scheduled to go to Sundance. And so Will Hyde and, and uh, all of us were hopeful that if we went out to Sundance Film Festival, we could have a chance to really woo a distributor and get out in the theaters. And so we announced that we were officially accepted. We were going in the uh, Sundance. And as soon as that happened, the Disney Channel put out a announcement that they were moving up the release of uh, our film on the cable channel much earlier, which of course would kill our chances for theatrical. Yeah. Um, So that became this weird chess move that was going on, but I still crossed my fingers and went out to the Sundance and um, we had our screening there and I had two of the judges came up and took me aside and quietly said, well, you know, we did a a review of everything and, and just privately discussing, we agreed that you have the best feature here this year. Mm -hmm. And, And we were up against some, some amazing films. The Cohen brothers were there and it's just like, but they said, we, if we give it to a cartoon, Sundance gives the top prize to a cartoon. We just don't think people will take the festival seriously. So we're, we're going to give it to another film, but just, I wanted you to know mm-hmm. that we really thought you had the best film here this year. So, you know, it's kind of a thank you, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I had another judge come up. So the two of them told me that, this is what had happened. So I'm going, well, damn, that's not going to help us. But I found uh, somebody from scurus came up to talk to me, the art house Distri- distribution groups, scurus films. And uh, so they totally got the film. They said, oh my gosh, this isn't a kiddie movie. It's like the title sounds like it, but this is for, this is a young adult, uh, a college and young adult movie. And I said, yeah, we were, I mean, we made it for ourselves. We were hoping uh, it, it's, we were been dying to make a movie that we would like. So we made a film for ourselves and all of us were in our twenties. And so they got it and they said, well, we wouldn't even need a matinee for families. We just would get like show it at night at our art house theaters for uh, this is a date movie. So I said, great. And they said, but, you got to have the Disney channel move their date. Cause that'll kill our theatrical. We have to have some time to run it through the theaters. Sure. So at that point uh, a guy approached, my wife and I, who is still my lawyer, wonderful guy named Peter Nichols. And
1: mm-hmm.
2: he was just starting out in the industry. And he said, I, "I hi, I'm just starting out as an entertainment lawyer. I loved your movie. Do you need a lawyer? And I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I do need a lawyer right now. I've got this crazy situation. So I explained it to him. And he went and he worked back and forth between Disney and Scurrus and just came back to me and said, I, I, I don't I don't get it. It's like it devalues the project to not to have a theatrical run, but they won't won't move the date to make room for a theatrical. So right. Scors has Skiris has to walk away. So um, so anyway, we all we all wound up licking our wounds. That you know, it was like coming to a VHS near you was not <laughs> what we had envisioned, and uh, and nobody was doing. Merchandising or, or theatrical. There were, there was a limited theatrical releases here and there that wound up just going to certain cities that Tom was able to put together over a number of months later, but we never got an, an official release. Right. So I was, and, and at the time, yeah. once we were in the video stores, I was seeing promotion for the other things that were releasing, but not for Toaster. So wow. I would go into video stores and actually, I, I admit, I would actually, Take Toaster, which was buried in the back, and I would bring it out and put it in front of like Jungle Book or something else.
1: <laughs> How horrible. <laughs>
2: put it up front to go like,
1: look at us. We're here. We are here. And, uh,
2: yeah. and then people discovered it. But most parents thought, oh, this is, this is a babysitter film, which had not at all what we were, were making. No. Um, but kids went through it. And I hear equally, it scared the crap out of me and gave me nightmares. And I loved it.
1: So <laughs> I, hear,
2: I, hear, I hear both equally.
1: It, ha- it has a very somber, dark. Well, it's it's very quiet when it, when the film opens up. It's basically the credits come up, and was that hmm? was that that was uh, you you wanted that? I I would imagine. Oh yeah, like,
2: I, I wanted yeah. mystery, and I, I yeah. the whole thing. It's just to me, it was the filmmaker and me finally getting to speak.
1: Yeah, and it's a, wonder, I, it's a I wonderful loved opening. Teasing.
2: I just love the tease to go, whose house is this? Why am I there?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, whose, whose picture is that? Why am I looking at this kid's picture? And then when the radio comes on, just thinking it's a normal radio. And I purposely had, when the light comes on and you hear a voice, you don't know it's a talking lamp. You just think it's a flashlight and probably a human, right? I did that on purpose to like tease you Mm -hmm. and then it gets closer. And then, you see the radio actually back up, and you see a lamp pop in. And you're like, "What the hell?" Yeah. And so I, you know, and I love that whole style of, of teasing and mood and emotion. And there were, and it came down to moments too, like you know when they're when the characters are sinking in the quicksand, and I mean it's a scary moment. There, as far as they're concerned, that's the end of the line. That's the they're just going into the quicksand and they won't be found. They'll just corrode and rust and be dead. Yeah. And, but when and Timothy E. Day, the cute little kid that did Blanky, you know, there's a scene where he's, he's about to go down and Deanna did a wonderful voice where she's terrified for him and is going, try to untie tell yourself. She's screaming to Blanky and he looks at her and he says, I'm not scared, but he has a quiver in his voice. Yeah. And, And he is scared, but he's he's saying that to make her feel less bad as he dies. You know, that's so, but we knew that stuff. We talked about that stuff. It's like, we don't want to wink to the audience. Like, oh, they, they think they're in trouble. It's like, no, this is, this is a world we believe with them. And this could be the last time we see them. They they're sinking in the quicksand. So have the characters believe it, have the audience believe it. And if, if salvation comes, so be it, but you don't, right now you're just in the moment. And in that moment, he's terrified, but trying to say he's not so that she doesn't feel so bad when he dies. So, so we would, you know, we would discuss those things as we recorded them.
1: What was the next step after uh, Brave Little Toaster? Because uh, that, that finished up, you went back to LA and what was the next project? Was that the, the The next uh,
2: project was just, the, the the common thread was I got to direct Robin Williams, who was also a, a genius in improv. So I went from working with all these groundlings, right? To the next person I directed was Robin Williams,
1: and, and basically he's shape shifting in that that attraction. Now this is for the animation tour at the Disney uh, Disney Studio uh, of Florida complex. The, uh, yeah, it was called
2: <laughs> Back to Neverland. It was, it, well, one, once I was directing and did, redid story, it was called Back to Neverland. Um, I, I got a call from Mark Kirkland, who I had gone to school with. Mm-hmm. And he, and since a lot of people would know him for having directed, I think, more Simpsons episodes than anyone else. <laughs> um, still going. And he, but he was line producer on a project for the the animation pavilion at Walt, at Walt Disney world in the uh, Disney MGM studios, they were going to open up. So uh, they wanted to have a functioning studio there and you would see what makes Disney animation special film before you went on that tour. So he just called me up and I didn't even know about it. And he said, we're making this thing for Disney. Uh, I'm at Bob Rogers and company studio, and I'm trying to bring together a team to do this. And we've actually been at it for close to 10 months. And we've even had Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson come over to, to collaborate, but, and we have two versions of it that are really well-developed, but we just feel like the wind's going out of the sails. And I like the way you do story. And I'd like somebody to come and be a fresh eye. Can you just come give us your two cents? So I went over and took a look at what they had and they had a Cisco and Ebert version talking about how many drawings per second and all that. They had a Carol Burnett and Donald Duck version. <laughs> and um, it always seemed to emphasize the technical aspect. So I just, I, I, you know, I, and they wanted my opinion. The whole reason was, here's what we have. We think it doesn't have the proper energy. You used to be a Disney feature animator. And this is a story of what makes Disney animation special. So from your perspective, are we telling that story? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, all due respect, lots of fine work went into this, but no, you're not telling the Disney story that the, any studio could brag on the same thing. So what makes Disney animation special is that every department is the story department. You don't pick a color cause it's pretty. You pick a color cause what it says emotionally about the character right now, mm-hmm. you know, for props and clothing and everything, every department is participating in the storytelling. And I had developed a, a thing that I had used as an argument against the, producer of, uh, or director producer of plague dogs. He was trying to talk us into coming to work for him. And he was, he was arguing that animators should just shut up and trace rotoscope. And I, (laughs) I, I, uh, that was not a good sales pitch for Tim Burton and I, who were in his office and he was trying to talk both of us into going, we had carpooled, uh, on a long trip to go up and meet him. And then we hear this kind of stuff. So we're like, okay, we don't need this. So I had come up with this phrase, um, it's not how you move the drawing, it's how the drawing moves the audience. Mm-hmm. I said, that's what an animator is about. That's what the Disney animation is about. That, that's what we should be doing. So I, I hit him with all of that and said, I, I said, if I were you, I would pick somebody like Robin Williams, who's just this amazing talent. And I would take him step by step and turn him into a cartoon character and have him feel how the color made him different colors made him feel different moods Mm -hmm. and different backgrounds made him feel different things and different music makes him feel different things like have him live the experience like go into it and feel all of that and prove to him as he feels all these emotions uh, happen that you know the the special magic of disney is is that and um so they said well let's meet in the morning and have another talk so i came in the next morning and i had written up a whole robin williams thing and uh bob is just like no 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 no, not let's not read through that it's just let's keep talking
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know we we hear you loud and clear um so i so i think we get a straight man to work with robin that'd be good so you know walt did that you know the straight man to a lot of his characters so it's great so we agreed on walter cronkite being a great straight man to mm-hmm. work with, with with robin and uh and then I was shocked. He just got on the phone and while I was there and there were, George Victor was there and, and, uh, and Mark Kirkland was there and Bob just got on the line and called and, and I think he was talking to Schneider. I was hearing somebody who eventually was yelling on the phone, uh, (laughs) saying like, we're, you know, that the. The two versions, we think we're going to unplug those. And I'm hearing no, no, not, screaming on the phone. He's like, Well, uh, you know, this guy, Jerry Reese, came by and like, who the heck is Jerry Reese? You know, so they're like, know who. Well, he was a feature animator. So uh, they, and then he hangs up and says, Okay, you've got like four weeks to get to do a version of this to present to Schneider. And if it gets past him, you got X weeks to do something for Katzberg. And I went, What are you talking about? This. I just came by to give you my opinion and they went, Oh no, you have to direct this. So I was suddenly shoved into that chair, but then my next battle was I had suggested Robin and they went, okay, good idea with taking somebody in, but not Robin because, and that this was resistance from Jeffrey's camp. He said crotch grabbing adult comic with substance abuse problems that he belongs nowhere near Disney animation. Mm -hmm. He's in good morning, Vietnam. We're doing that project with him. He's like R rated. Uh, adult live action movie, that's where he belongs. It's like, I know you want to be not your, but no. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I, so I my argument back was: well, do you think do you think Pinocchio is a charming Disney feature? I said, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, do you know who played Jiminy Cricket? Well, his name was Cliff Edwards, and his stage name was ukulele Ike. He worked blue. You could buy buy records with him singing nasty songs and sadly he died of substance abuse problems. And uh, so I think he's really the equivalent of Robin and Walt looked past all of those impediments and just saw the magic that this guy had. And he is magic. Jiminy Cricket is the perfect casting. And I said, "I, I think this is not like Jerry the Atour choice. I really think this is a very well kind of choice. And I, 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 I cite Jiminy Cricket, Cliff Edwards as my, <laughs> as my <laughs> argument. So then it was like, okay, so Jeffrey gave in, but it was just because this is a short and it's away from the feature division and it's over in the parks, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the parks, they expect, especially Disney and Studios, they'll expect a little different tone there. And if it fails, at least it's just a short that failed and we won't be risking one of the features. So I you know, I got permission. And then Robin was a dream to work with. Uh, one of the sequences I had was let him improvise and did metamorphosis animation. Franz Vischer actually was my animator to do the metamorphosis scene. Mm-hmm. And John Musker, who I went to school with, and Ron Clements uh, looked at that sequence and was like, that could be the genie metamorphosis and Robin Williams and that led directly to him being cast in Aladdin next. So they went from like, no, Robin Williams does not belong. He is, <laughs> he is dangerous to like, Oh, we love Robin.
1: And, um, you know, I have, so- I, I, I just want to interject and, and this is something that I've noticed throughout the years, but even more so through the podcast, yeah. how animators or people with an animation background tend to, do a lot of voices and they <laughs> and they're actually sp- into it now and then. they're spot on they're spot on i mean i i do them too and uh and, but uh i've i've had people go like uh the last person on was uh dave pruxma and you know he's talking about he's talking uh he's starting going to go into all these different impressions of of characters <laughs> uh you know that he he worked on, so right. I, I just, it's just an observation. I don't know. I yeah. I, I think a you lot of times I don't even realize it's happening. I, it's <laughs> not well. You could you could go on stage. You have another career going. For you. <laughs> so, but it was
2: so delightful to yeah. to a have Robin be uh, just charming and brilliant and and soulful person, right. and then to have um, the studio embrace him and then to have him open up this whole chapter of disney with aladdin and it was the sweetest thing john musker and ron clemens told me and told our crew as they premiered aladdin they said oh we put a permanent tip of the hat because you know it's like that short and robin that paved the way for this kind of movie and so there's a permanent thank you in the film look for it
1: Wow. so absolutely.
2: we you know for the first 10 minutes i'm looking for it and then i totally forget <laughs> and i just caught up in their story and then well, near the end when the genie gets his freedom and he's sort of warping back and forth between different the, the parallel existences one he comes back and one time he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a Goofy hat and and uh his little camera and stuff and that was an homage to how Robin Williams was dressed at the beginning of my film when he steps out of the audience in live action mm-hmm. he's wearing he's wearing that kind of outfit so he has the Goofy hat and the Hawaiian shirt and the little camera so that was the permanent Thank you to the the short film that's embedded in the film. So if you want to win a uh, a bet at a cocktail party, and uh, that's
1: that's another little little detail you can use. There you go. Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite actually became really good friends.
2: Yes, and when I
1: went to New York after that, it was funny because I got to
2: pitch working with Walter to Robin, and then I got to New York and pitch working with Robin to Walter, and and that was that was amazing. I mean, we could do a whole chapter on that, but the cliff notes are. It was going to be this big trip to New York to meet with Walter Cronkite, and Eisner was going, Katzenberg was going, Schneider was going. Oh, you know, it's like a whole thing, and then I was—it's like yes, and the writer-director is actually going to be there too, and I'm going to—I to have a book of storyboards to go through with with Cronkite. But it was like the big parade, and which would have been fine. I I loved hanging out with those guys, but but <laughs> then Eisner got busy with something and he was booked and couldn't make it. And then they're like, well, if Eisner can't go, who's, you know, Katzenberg isn't quite the status to replace him or be his equal or, you know, so it's like, well, it's better politics if he doesn't go. And then it's like, well, Schneider is hardly in their league. And so finally it became just me. So I just, I was alone <laughs> wow. with Cronkite, but they'd booked a big room with like an endlessly long table. And so I just went down and sat at one end of the giant table with Walter and took him through the, the book, right. and uh, mm-hmm. it was just great to, to show him scenes envisioning how he and Robin would work together, and
1: uh, this was your I mean, was this your idea to have Walter Cronkite and Robin Williams together? Was that did that come out of your head or did somebody say no? We got to use Walter.
2: Yeah, I, I got to hand it to to Bob Rogers he suggested Cronkite as the straight man. So I, you know, Robin was my passion. Cronkite was the suggestion that he brilliantly offered to, to be, to complete the duo. And I just thought that was perfect. And it was kind of, and I told, I told Cronkite, I said, you, I I ribbed him a little bit. I, he said, now Walter, you were voted the most trusted voice probably in the world. Yeah. And, uh, certainly in, in news. And, uh, I used to watch your show called the Twenty First Century, where it was every—I think it was every Friday night—and he, he would mm-hmm. talk with his great narration about what was coming in the future. <laughs> so he and I said, "You promised me that in nineteen eighty, I'd have my own jetpack. Where's my jetpack?" <laughs> 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 so then he was amused by that. Wow. But I said, "You know, most trusted voice uh, you know, tells me I'm going to have a jetpack, and I—I I don't have it." Uh, but anyway, he—he he said he was very curious to meet Robin. Mm-hmm. Always been interested in him and Robin. Oh, he just went on and on about what a respected figure Cronkite was and just told me Walt's well, whole history and everything. So, uh, so it was a mutual admiration society. And then it was so fun to introduce them and have them working together. And also just kudos to, to Corey Burton, who did all my temp tracks for Robin and Walter. So as I would show the reel the story reel to right. Katzenberg and Schneider and and Michael Eisner it was actually Corey Burton brilliantly doing his Cronkite mm-hmm. and his Robin Williams imitation right so well, you you uh, could have
1: you could have done them from what I, well, I, I I appreciate gosh. that
2: Jeez. but uh, but he 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 was awesome right. and I I got to call Corey and say uh, Eisner was fooled by it he because Eisner said hey when did you get time to go Record with Robin and Walter, (laughs) and and so I called Corey and said, you know, Eisner thought it was really them, but I, I, as Robin and Walter arrived at the set, I put on the story reel and I said, look, this is just, this is just to let you guys have feel the shape of it because we're going to have a lot of odd scenes where you're just in an empty stage with color washes coming through and something that isn't there yet because it's going to be animated. So, just so you understand how it all comes together, I'll go ahead and show you this this reel, and you know, forgive the the imitations of you, we had to put something in so that, you know, they would have an idea of what you might do. Right. So uh, we finished watching the whole thing <laughs> and Cronkite turns to Robin and goes, why do they need us? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, but then, but great. then th- there were times where I had them uh, on the set and we, we had in one of the scenes, they talk about storytelling and we have giant books as one of the sets. And we actually built, Craig Stern, the production designer, actually built the giant books. So they really were as big as they looked. And Robin and Walter were between the books and then would walk out on my cue. And I, I wish I could have heard, they were starting that friendship when they were just hanging out together on the set. So I would park them and get ready and say, okay, I'll just be in just a moment. I just uh, need another minute. And then I would hear in the distance, just they were making each other laugh with some kind of stories and i but i never knew quite what was going on and then later i had to do after we finished the whole film but we had some little short segments that played in a walk-around tour in the same building that had smaller bits with robin walter after the main film and i had to go get some additional lines for that in new york where robin was playing uh Waiting for Godot mm-hmm. at the Lincoln Center with Steve Martin and F. Murray Abraham and um gosh, what's his name? Bill Irwin. So they were they were performing Waiting for Godot. So I went to meet Robin to record. I tried to go to the show, but it was booked. And so I went and recorded with him and uh he th- talked about meeting with the Cronkites and having dinner. It's like, oh yeah, they you know, they they got together, they had dinner, and they were gonna get together again later on. So the this whole friendship had had happened because of that and i was so happy that that had happened because <laughs> they both seemed to get such joy from from the how different it's like night and day right but both both of them very genuine and i must say that cronkite was as charming and had as much of a twinkle in his eye and intelligence as you would hope for wow. and robin was just as much of the sweetheart and genius as you would hope so, I mean, lucky me to work with two such people and I, I got to be a real hero to introduce Cronkite to my parents so oh wow, I, wow that's great. So on the, on the set so they i
1: jerry jerry i want i wanna thank you for the time i look we've gone really long, and uh I'd love to pick up at some later date and talk about the feature film you did, which was marrying man and mm-hmm. uh like to talk a little bit about that, but I want to talk about all the stuff you've worked on for Walt Disney Imagineering. You're an Imagineer. 22. 22. Uh, 22 right, attractions. To, to, to date,
2: yes. I, uh, I well, just, then the first one being Back to Neverland, but uh, other crazy ones.
1: <laughs> I just came back from uh, Walt Disney World and uh, made it, made it a, a thing to actually go on all the attractions that were still there that you worked on. So... You know, uh, we have to we have to talk about that at a later date. But uh, I don't want to Great. keep you too much longer. I admit. I appreciate and I all just the time. Found out,
2: yes, I just found out. By the way, uh I'm ha- having done now, and I'll either pick them up probably Wednesday. Some yeah. my own videos that I took during the making of Cranium Command and Alien Encounter and Michael and Mickey and yes. um and Cinemagique. I actually have about two and a half hours that I just got a week ago where I found these old tapes that I had taken just to prepare for the film. Like while we were building sets, I would have my production designer get in and go, okay, Julie Delphi's gonna walk over here, like do it. And then and so we'd, it was just the making, behind the scenes building, getting ready for the project. So wow. I'm I'm looking forward to having some more never before seen behind the scenes stuff here and there of of some of those projects.
1: Are you Are you putting that on your website? I you know I'll figure out
2: what to do as I get more of the material together. Mm-hmm. I, I thought in the case of Cineg, it would be really fun to do an a B like here's why we're building it and with my you know production designer walking it and now here it is in the finished thing with with uh, Marty and, and Julie Delpy in the, in the same scene for real and sort of just do an a B cut and then post that somewhere. but probably on I, I might start another like a, just add it to my YouTube channel, make my YouTube channel a little more robust.
1: That'd be really cool. Something like that. I I really... There's a
2: lot of stories over the years and sometimes I go on, so...
1: No, 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 no. It's great. It's great because sometimes we we get some interesting uh, material coming out just by some of the questions. And and, um, And since it isn't live, I know you can cut wherever you need to. I can cut. (laughs) I have the magic. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. No, I just... uh, Once again, I just want to say, you know, uh, all the work that you've done over the years, I've just like been amazed by all the stuff that you've been involved in and uh, and you should be a Disney legend. They, you know, I mean, it seems like they just hand them out like, you know, okay, you're a Disney <laughs> legend. you're a Disney. I mean, don Don Hahn got his, which uh, uh, you know i I sent him a little text saying, you know, well deserved, you know, very well deserved right. and and long, long overdue. and uh, uh, you you should be.
2: Uh, mine will be posthumous. It'll be uh, somebody figuring
1: it out someday. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. But uh, anyway, thanks for coming on here. I mean.
0: Do you have any questions or comments about the podcast? Please email Brian at com. Your email may be featured in one of our future shows.
1: Hey, thank you, Jerry Reese, for coming on and doing that wonderful interview with us. Uh, What's interesting is uh, we've only scratched the surface of Jerry's career. He's worked on 22 theme park attractions. We've only really uh, talked about one of them. So uh, love to have him back. Those uh, 21 attractions, a lot of them are fan favorites. So, uh, you know, we have to have Jerry back. uh, Talk about uh, all that. So hope to have him back real soon. Next week on the Scrum Cartoonerific Podcast, our special guest will be impressionist and voice artist extraordinaire, Mr. Keith Scott. Now, Keith is not only a brilliant impressionist, he does the classic cartoon voices oh so well, and I hope he does a few on next week's show. I'm crossing my fingers. Let's hope, all right? Uh, he's also written one of the best books on animation history about the J. Ward Studio. And that book is called The Moose That Roared. I believe it's still in print. If you don't have it, if you haven't read it, read it, buy it, make it part of your library today. It's a great book. Uh, Keith has a new book coming out about the golden age of animation and all the people that did voices for the cartoons. Now, everybody knows Mel Blanc did Bugs Bunny and Tweety Pie and Sylvester. As a matter of fact, he was the only one credited, but did you know there were other people that did voices for those Warner Brothers cartoons, but were just not credited? And everybody thought that it was Mel Blanc doing everything. Well, you're going to hear hear a lot about that next week. Uh, so anyway, that book, Cartoon Voices, available uh, through bearmanormedia.com. If you don't have it, go out and get it. Uh, and uh, if you want to listen to the podcast first, listen to the podcast and then buy it afterwards. There you go. So you have your choice there. Anyway, uh, if you haven't subscribed, subscribe. If you haven't told a friend, tell them now. Anyway, I want everybody to have a great day. I want you to have an excellent week. And we'll see you all again next time. Thank you so much for tuning in.
0: This has been a Cartoonerific Studios presentation.
1: The Cartoonerific Podcast is copyright 2024 by Cartoonerific Studios Incorporated. All rights reserved.